Hello and welcome back to Lutheran Witness Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Askins. Here on the Lutheran Witness Podcast, we normally share content online, but we have something special this month. Uh, we have two guests with us on the podcast to discuss articles in the May issue of the Lutheran Witness. So stay tuned for that. Before we get there, I want to give a quick shout out to our podcast partners, kfuo.org. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Check them out, kfuo.org. All right, so today we have with us uh, two writers from the May issue of the Lutheran Witness, which was titled Made and Marked by Christ, and it's a discussion, the whole issue is a discussion of the church. Today we have with us Stacy Egger and Sarah Rinsel, who will be talking about their articles in the May issue. We're going to see how long it takes. Maybe we'll get through both of them today, maybe we won't, uh, but we'll talk about their articles and, and what they, they learned and what what uh, these articles, how these articles can serve you in the church. So we're actually going to start off with uh, Stacy. How are you doing today, Stacy? Doing great. And Sarah, how are you doing today? Doing great. Good. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Uh, we're going to talk about Stacy's article first in the uh, May issue, and that article is titled Multi-Congregation Parishes, Lively Word and Sacrament Ministry, and in which she talks about uh, a phenomenon in the LCMS called Multi-Congregation Parishes, Stacy, kick us off first. What is a multi-congregation parish? So a multi-congregation parish, a formal multi-congregation parish agreement, usually they enter into a contract agreement and there's kind of a formal designation of this congregation is going to put in this amount of money, the other congregation will put in this amount, and essentially they share a pastor or administrative team depending on the size. But it can be two, three, four congregations there are also, the story covers different partnership models that aren't that formal MCP, but that MCP, the number is, I think, a thousand something. It's like almost 20% of our congregations in the Senate are in one of these agreements currently. Yeah, that's incredible. What mm-hmm. What is, uh, you know, we, we use the term MCP. What's a common phrase, other common words that people might use to describe this MCP or multi-congregation Yeah, parish? people will call them dual parishes a lot, um, or you'll hear them, you know, tri-parish, quad-parish, um, but this MCP, multi-congregation parish, is the umbrella term for sharing a pastor or administrative team. What's most common, sharing pastors or administrative teams? Like, what's kind of the most common? The most common tends to be one pastor, and they Mm -hmm. tend to be in rural or small-town areas where it's a couple of small congregations that can't fully support one pastor on their own, so they team together, and there's the one pastor, maybe sometimes a shared secretary or... um, some other staff member that's there as well, but usually just one sole pastor. Why is it important? You know, this time we, we this issue, you know, was talking about the church, really kind of the, one of the key articles, the other key article was the, the marks of the church and how do you find the church? Uh, Dr. Mummy wrote that article on this issue and it was a really, really great uh, article, but why focus on the church, the, this aspect of the church now? What's kind of important about that in our current context? Yeah, well, the, the numbers part of it is that they're, are declining congregations, just numbers-wise, in the sense that our LCMS membership is aging and some of these congregations are getting smaller. And so that's kind of the efficient cause. You know, a lot of congregations are getting to this point and saying, well, we can't financially support a pastor, but we don't want to close. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of the practical reason why we're talking about it now. But one of the things that came up over and over again in these conversations with district presidents and pastors is that it's not just this, oh no, what do we do? It's actually this moment where the numbers are are looking difficult in different places is kind of this moment of reflection where we can think about what are we doing that is maybe a reduplication of efforts in some places or 
um, what is essential for the church to be doing, and that can be this positive refocusing for the church body. So it can it, it is a good moment to say, how can we work together as the church to accomplish our mission in an efficient way that that can be a blessing to each of the congregations in the partnership and then can bless the community as well as we're able to reach mm-hmm. out and, and welcome others in. You had this great quote in here, and I don't know if this was, uh, I don't think it was a direct quote. I think it was your summary of what somebody else said. It's one of our poll quotes. These partnerships, if approached rightly, serve not as a tourniquet on a wound, but as a positive blessing to the church. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think before writing this story, when I'd heard about these sorts of congregations, I th- I thought of it as, well, this is kind of, you know, you get into this bad place and you kind of have to. And I sort of assumed you talk to these pastors and yeah. it's kind of, yeah, well, I had to take on, you know, this complete second set of responsibilities. But everyone I spoke to was so positive about it and joyful. And um, it seems like so many of these work in a very fruitful way and, and help these congregations see that we actually were a part of a larger church all along. Mm-hmm. And maybe when we're really successful and we're able to kind of silo off and do our own thing and have our own idiosyncrasies and, you know, hop around. If that particular congregation doesn't suit us, we can lose that, lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we're forced to circumstantially um, work together, it helps us to see, wow, this, we have all of these partners out there who, you know, are five miles down the street and there's another congregation there and, it, it can really help us refocus on what the church is, what the pastor is there for. And um, yeah, it's just, it can be a really positive thing. That's great. Sarah, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick mm-hmm. and ask you, uh, have you had any experience in your life as an LCMS Lutheran with one of these multi-congregation parishes? Have you, do you know anybody in these contexts? Have you, do you know a pastor or anything like that? No, I've, I've never experienced it myself. No. Uh, your article, which we're going to get to in just a minute, focuses predominantly on uh, international partner churches. Um, do you say, did, did any of this come up as these churches work together and as they worked kind of in the founding uh, the same concept of a multi-congregation parish, did it come, at, come up at all? In, yeah, in yeah, it did come up. And I mean, I think in, in pretty much all of these histories that happened fairly frequently where there was a sort of circuit writer pastor who was uh, attending to three or four congregations or maybe more um, because there is just there, there's one of the, the predominant themes is there's always a shortage of pastors or even if there are pastors, then we need to make sure that we're we're educating them and getting them to seminary and that sort of thing. So yeah, so it seems like this is kind of a very a very typical model actually for the church. It's not a it's not a tourniquet. It's just actually how we operate. <laughs> exactly right. And that, that I mean this is very true for the history of the LCMS too. I, we, when I did the the 175th anniversary article back in May of or April of last year, these pastors would visit numerous congregations. Um, uh, the pastor out in uh, Winnicott, out in Fort Wayne, I think he traveled something like 50 miles on horseback on a regular basis, visiting all these congregations and all the churches we visited out there. They're like, oh yeah, some kind of connection to Winnegan because he was just traveling from church to church, preaching and teaching. Um, Stacy, let's get back to your article. And let me ask, what is, uh, what is kind of your hope with this article? Uh, what do you hope it helps the people of the LCMS as they're, you know, in their congregations, in their own contacts? What do you hope that they, they can learn from this? Yeah, well, one thing that I heard again and again, basically everyone I spoke to, people who had entered into these and then district presidents kind of advising about how these 
worked out the most successfully in their districts, everyone said, get started early slash now. You know, the earlier you can be looking at it and saying here, I mean, even to think about it this way, if you're working together with a congregation nearby you just to do whatever you can, hold events together, um, have fellowship, maybe share a staff member or even someone said share a copy or, you know, anything you can be doing to steward your resources well, then you start to form those connections that then down the road, if you do end up uh, interested in an arrangement like this, you already have a congregation that you know and can work well with. Um, so, so that's one aspect, just to get people aware of this and thinking about it, especially a lot of these, I mean, uh, the Montana district, uh, I spoke to District President Forkey of the Montana district, and I think he said 73% of congregations in Montana are in one of these multi-congregation parishes already. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, but but some states uh, and some areas of some states, specifically cities, are they're much less common. It's really in rural and small town areas that these have taken off. But I think to get this on the radar of people in these areas where it hasn't really hit yet so much um, is a really fruitful thing, especially if you look at it as not just what do we do in a time of crisis, but as something that can be this positive thing for really any church to potentially consider. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you've, you interviewed President Forkey. Mm-hmm. I know you did a lot of research for this, which is kind of my hope and asking both of you to do this. I, Sarah had like all of my archives basically from the Lutheran Witness <laughs> stuck around her desk. It was pretty awesome. Uh, but I asked, wanted you to kind of dig into this, really do some research on this. Uh, and you did quite a few interviews. Kind of tell us about the the scope of who all you interviewed and talked to and kind of the research that you put into this article. Yeah, I spoke to a number of district presidents. I kind of started there and I couldn't talk to all of them, unfortunately. <laughs> it would have been fun. But I tried to speak to people from different states that had kind of different characteristics. So I spoke to District President Lang out in California, Nevada, Hawaii, um, uh, Pastor Pingle in the Eastern District, President Pingle, and then... I had Wisconsin, Kansas, Montana, Minnesota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, just kind of a smattering. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I asked them, how how are these MCPs looking in your state or your district? And who should I speak to? And then started reaching out to those pastors. So then I spoke to a smattering of pastors in these states and, and kind of got a spread there to some that were, um, I spoke to one pastor in Montana who drives 300 miles between his three parishes and um, I spoke to a, one uh, pastor of what had been a dual parish that I think they were within two miles or something of one another, <laughs> and they just merged into one yeah. congregation. So just kind of a, a wide, as wide a range as I could get. So You gathered quite a bit of information. You had a lot of stories, a lot of interviews. Um, obviously, we weren't able to include all of it as much as we wanted to. Um, what's one, a couple of stories that you would love to have included in the, uh, in the issue that we couldn't, we couldn't keep in there. Yeah, there was so much, I mean, a lot of them, I included, I think one kind of concrete story of, uh, I think it was a dual or a tri-parish that they had all kind of been pitching in when another one was struggling. And there were so many that were just like that, that I almost wish I could have just laid out, look how often this happens. Mm-hmm. It was like everyone had a story of maybe um, the death or sickness of one of the pastors or, or something where the other congregations had, because they all had this relationship, had been able to just step up and really act like the church and not just within their own congregation, but within mm-hmm. their dual or tri-parish. 
One really cool one that I wish I could have included was uh, Pastor Scammon's dual parish in Connecticut and their mm-hmm. merger because he just had such a great story of coming in and two congregations with so much history, but, you know, really just should be one congregation mm-hmm. at this point. And by, he, was, he said he could have probably forced the merger his first year there and they probably would have lost 20 to 30% of the congregation. And it was five years of conversation they didn't lose a single member as a result of the merger. And he just told this really great story about the closing divine service at First Lutheran, which mm-hmm. was this really cool Greenwich church, um, kind of like downtown, uh, mm-hmm. really old, beautiful building. And that ended up being the one to close because the other oh, one was a little further out. And yeah. it was just, you know, it just, it made sense. But it, it like it, it pains me. I mean, yeah. to close the old beautiful, yeah, right, you know, Gothic. like the city block, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but um, they they did the service of the word at First Lutheran, and this sort of I don't know what it's called, but the rite of decommissioning of a mm-hmm. church, and then they all left, went over to uh, St. Paul's Sanctuary, and had the service of the sacrament there, and kind of their first service as one congregation. And he said that there was one member who was there when First Lutheran was held held their first mm-hmm. opening service. She was 90 something. And then and she you know was crying, but she's still there yeah. and she's so, you know excited about it and then she's you know now a member at the merged church. So mm-hmm. just so many everyone had so many stories like this. It was just really it was exciting to hear. Yeah. So as you, you think about Pastor Skamen's story, you know, what's maybe one or two takeaways from that story that congregations who are considering this uh, this kind of idea of merging these two congregations that are close together? What are some some things they can take away from that story to keep in mind as they they consider this? As they say, you know, can we do this? How should we do this? That kind of a thing. Yeah, I one thing that I heard a few people say is a lot of people. I mean, almost everyone is a fan of this in theory. You know, it makes <laughs> yeah. sense financially, and we can bless the greater church by doing this but almost no one is a fan of when it comes down to it. Oh yeah, let's close my church. And which just, you know, (laughs) it's just the hardest thing when you have family history tied into it um, and personal history tied into it. And it's just such a a hard thing. So I I think there is something to be said always about keeping two congregations open Mm -hmm. if possible. You know, there's so many benefits to that, to having, even if they're pretty close Mm -hmm. to having congregations in two places. I think it comes down to, and this is um, something that Dan Galshett said, who was kind of, he was in the Kansas district and leading up a lot of the creation of these partnership resources. He just said, think about what the church is and are you hindering the work of the church by staying open in some way? There was a congregation in Kansas that they use as an example of church church closure and merger was, I think was Faith Hugaton, uh, that they kind of got ahead of it. And they said, you know what? We could be the greatest blessing to the church by selling our building, having our members go to this other congregation and mm-hmm. kind of distributing those resources from the sale to the, these other congregations. Wow. And by getting ahead of it like that, they were able to, you yeah. know, make money off the sale before they got into this financial crisis. So I think just thinking about in so many of these cases with the MCPs, you can continue your ministry in a really strong, fruitful way by partnering up. But but just thinking 
like you would with forming an MCP? How can we best bless the the church at large? Uh, you listed in your article four obstacles that people need to watch out for: congregational identity, service times, pastor's time and attention, and community tensions, uh, and how these obstacles can make it difficult to form one of these things. Uh, what other obstacles did you not have the space to list out that probably should be listed in there? Yeah, I, I tried to make those pretty broad categories. So some of the others could maybe, you know, be considered underneath congregational identity. That's kind of the huge yeah. one. Um, <laughs> but some of them maybe that I didn't list were just the, the real challenge for the pastor. Um, okay. And one of the district presidents said, and this was what I experienced talking to these pastors. It was amazing to me just how this district president said, I've never encountered a pastor who's not willing to do this. And they were all so enthusiastic and eager mm-hmm. about the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a challenge, especially like, um, and this I'm sure is kind of a tie-in to Sarah's article, but one of the district presidents said, it's like learning two languages mm-hmm. and having to, I mean, even just learning to, learning one congregation and how to communicate the gospel clearly to them is the difficult task that a pastor faces, but to have to do that with two or three different congregations constantly as they gain and lose members mm-hmm. um, in maybe three completely different towns, things like that are just uh, a burden on the pastor. And then on the flip side of that, it, when it comes to making sure all the congregations feel that you have their attention and you're making an appearance, you and your family in mm-hmm. all three places. I would imagine um, family is kind of key in there too. Yeah. I mean, like, the pastor's family always goes to one congregation. The other congregation is like, well, we want to see the kids mm-hmm. too, or we want to see your wife. Yeah. I can, I can imagine yeah. that being difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I had people say, I had some of these pastors say kind of a best practice, I suppose, of being a MCP pastor is bring your family along. But mm-hmm. then uh, I had a district president say, well, it does help you. It does help these congregations focus on, what do we need? What is the pastor called to do? And the reality is that the pastor is called and the family isn't. So <laughs> so some of that I think is just worked out between the the congregations and the pastor. But I think when it comes down to it, that's another area where you do have to kind of overlook maybe sometimes some of these emotional mm-hmm. tensions and just say, this is what the congregation is here for and are we doing it? Uh, any other things on congregational identity? Yeah, I, I talked a lot. I talked a bit about history in the article. I think another one uh, that came up, especially in some places, was worship styles or or culture that's developed mm-hmm. within the congregation. Not mm-hmm. necessarily. I talked also about cultures of the two communities with mm-hmm. sports rivalries and things like that. But sometimes there are just different um one of the pastors said, we, we build our identity around so many things that are not Jesus. And, and that can become an issue when you're mm-hmm. trying to, when you're placing certain things, traditions that you've pre- developed within your congregation, even if it's a hundred year old longstanding tradition, um, but it's not, it doesn't have Christ at its center, or yeah. it is something that's negotiable. Then mm-hmm. you, you get to a moment where, where are we going to close our doors or are we going to let mm-hmm. this go and find a way to to partner with this other congregation. So I think that's a way in which it can become a really healthy thing to mm-hmm. to step back and say, okay, what do we really need here, which is ultimately Christ. And his gifts. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. Yep. What's the next step in this topic? If you were going to write another article 
and kind of extend this beyond uh, what you have for our readers, what would you what would you go next? Yeah, I I think one area that I wanted to explore more that came up with a couple of the pastors, um, and I just didn't really have have time to even research, uh, let alone include in the article, was just the question of MCPs in cities. Mm -hmm. So most of these statistically, and there are some in cities and especially in smaller towns, but most of them are rural or very small town kind Mm -hmm. of, usually to adjacent communities or just to uh, rural congregations partnered together. But there are a lot of cities where there are so many beautiful old buildings mm-hmm. and the congregations in those buildings uh, are usually a lot of history. I mean, this is where we have these amazing LCMS churches that you just, mm-hmm. to close them is just painful. <laughs> um, but sometimes there's 30, 40 people worshiping yeah. there on a Sunday. Um, so I, I don't entirely know why this hasn't come to cities as much Uh but, but it does seem like a lot of, actually, several of the pastors that I spoke to had tried to get this going in uh, a parish that they'd been in in a, mm-hmm. a city. And then there had just been, there, there seems to be less uh, responsiveness from city membership for whatever reason. Um, and one of the pastors uh, in Kansas had tried to get this going in Cleveland. And he started, he has this cathedral model where you mm-hmm. have, um, kind of like an administrative team, ba- basically based out of one, the, the most, I guess, uh, just financially thriving congregation. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. that congregation is able to help out by blessing other more struggling congregations with a pastor mm-hmm. and um, some resources. And he tried to get that going in Cleveland and it just did not take off. And I heard yeah. similar stories. So that's kind of, I think, for at least my curiosity, the next step is how, when this yeah. comes to cities, which it probably will start how, how is that going to work? Are the models going to be different or, or how do we get people more mm-hmm. open to the idea? Yeah, that, that is interesting. I was, I was wondering, uh, and, and maybe you didn't, this didn't come up at all, but I was wondering, I mean, it's almost like a model where you might have somebody in a, a church in a suburban context with more resources reaching into the city and saying, here's some, you know, resources, a pastor, staff, finances, whatever, to help these congregations anything mm-hmm. come up like that or is it, or do, or is the inner city stuff that's not working primarily like, focused on like the city congregations themselves and not kind of going beyond that. Yeah. I, I think there, I mean, I know, and I didn't speak to any pastors in this setting, but I know of suburban churches that are attempting church plants like that, which is great. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this um, thriving suburban congregation. Let's do an outreach into the city and start mm-hmm. a new congregation. But I wonder if we couldn't pool our resources better by reaching out to a church that already exists and, and not to say that church planting isn't right. uh, a very good and fruitful thing. And I think that that was another one that I considered with this question as a next topic topic actually is, should we be planting churches even though we're, yeah. you know, tr- working to keep our doors open in, in a lot of these settings? And I think the answer is yes. But if some of those suburban congregations couldn't reach out and, you mm-hmm. know, devote some of those resources to a congregation that's already there and could use their help. I I always ask this, uh, was there a question I should have included and did not include that, that some bit of information you need to get out there that I didn't think to ask about? Yeah, I, I'm trying to think what the question would be. Well, well, you said uh, one of the ones you emailed to me was what hope or not do you now have for the church? Ah, yeah. And I did just want to say, um, 
I loved talking to all of these pastors. It mm -hmm. was really, and maybe I already said this, but I really went into this thinking, man, this seems like a really hard job. And I kind of would ask the pastors, what are the, the challenges that come along with this? And what advice do you have for a pastor that might be called into a situation like this, thinking that there would be some caveats and there really weren't. Everyone seemed really just eager and excited to be doing what they were doing and to have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel and, mm -hmm. and keep two congregations open in, in two places that are doing that. So, How did the district presidents respond to this idea of, of multi-congregation parishes? Is this like an emphasis that the district presidents have? They're really kind of pushing this idea? I mean, what, kind of what was, their, what was their overall thought about the whole thing? Yeah, yeah. Without exception, uh, everyone that I spoke to as soon as I reached out said, yeah, this is something that is going on in our district and there are going to be more. And maybe a range of enthusiasms, but everyone was really, <laughs> mm -hmm. this is um, something that's necessary, that's already going on, and that, that can be can be a really positive thing if, mm -hmm. if done right. Did, uh, did you ask the question or did it ever come up how they evaluate between we want to move this congregation toward a multi-congregation parish versus, no, this is a congregation we should probably close? Yeah. Because uh, we didn't address that. You didn't, I don't think you addressed that in the article. Yeah. So I did ask that and it, it really, there's kind of, there seems to be district guidance that varies district by district gotcha. for a variety of reasons. Um, d you know, things look very different in Montana versus, <laughs> you know, Kansas. In Montana, I think there's a quote in the story that something about if, if you close one of these, you might not have an LCMS congregation for a hundred miles or something like that. And then right. in some of these, if you close, I mean, with the, the Connecticut example, you have now <laughs> one within two miles instead of yeah. two within two miles. Um, and then what it comes down to is that these decisions are made by the congregations in the LCMS. So the answer was often a lot of it is about leadership and mm -hmm. guiding people through this uh, numbers ranged often it was around 50 is kind of the 50 members mm. uh, active members is when you start really needing to look at a partnership but yeah at the end of the day it, it does come down to the congregation so mm -hmm. a lot of it is just about careful yeah. guidance any last words for congregations that are looking at multi-congregation parishes and and uh, any words of hope and encouragement for them or anything like that yeah. One thing that almost everyone said, and, and I touch on this in the article, is just that keeping the the purpose of the church at the center is the best uh, step to success um, as, as partners. And so don't just look at your finances and say, oh man, we really better find somebody to team up with. Mm -hmm. But look at what you can be doing as the church in the most... Uh, how you can be stewards of what you have in the best way, stewards of the gospel, and how you can work together with those around you. Thank you very much, Stacy, for your uh, your 
article for taking the time to write this because uh, I didn't have the time to write it and I think you did a great job on it. So thank you very much for that and then also for coming on and talking to us. Absolutely. But you're going to stick on and we're going to talk to Sarah now about her article. Sarah Rinsel's article in the uh, May issue of The Lutheran Witness is Partners in the Gospel. Tell us, give us the overview, Sarah. What's the uh, the article about? Sure, yeah. So the article gives a really brief history of each LCMS partner church in Latin and South America. And so a partner church is someone that someone in a different country that we are in altar and pulpit fellowship with. So that's a that's a technical term. The the altar part means that we may commune at each other's altars, right? So if I find myself at a church in Brazil, then I may commune there if they're in partnership with us. And then the pulpit part of altar and pulpit fellowship means that our pastors, right? So an LCMS pastor or a pastor from um, who's been ordained at the Arge- at the seminary in Argentina they can preach at each other's services too mm-hmm. so um, it's a it's a mark of orthodoxy it's a mark of church unity that we're in agreement about our, our confessional identity excellent uh, tell me what church what uh, countries do we have partner churches now we're talking Latin and South America, the actual region here in terms of international mission is actually Latin America and Caribbean. But we said Latin America and South America because it actually covers kind of that whole region. So what right. countries are we talking about here? Right. Yeah. So so um, we're talking Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Paraguay, Uruguay, and Venezuela. I may be missing one. Mexico and Guatemala. <laughs> missing two. <laughs> we, uh, the the uh, article has actually a wonderful little map here because I'll be honest, I didn't know where all of these were. Uh, and when I saw the map, I was like, oh, I did not think Argentina was right there. I should have known that. <laughs> my Asian geography is much better than my uh, South American geography. So tell me a little bit uh, about the research you did for this article. You stole all my archives, as I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, which is really delightful. I'd love to see those being used. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about kind of the information you gathered, where you got it from. Sure. Kind of what's the scope of your research on this? Sure, on this? yeah. So we have we have issues of the Lutheran Witness sitting behind Roy's desk that go back about 100 years, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, 100 years. And um, so I just pulled probably 40 of those off the shelf and barricaded <laughs> myself into the into a cubicle for a while with those. And so the these Lutheran witnesses used to well I guess they published used to publish a lot of things that would now fall fall under the umbrella of maybe reporter or Lutherans engage the world, but there are a lot of le- uh, letters from the mission field um, that the missionaries are just writing into the publication. So I got a lot of information from those. And I also spent several afternoons at Concordia Historical Institute down at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Um, so they, they were really helpful there in getting me uh, into the archives and looking at looking at different papers that were relevant to me. So one of, there are a lot of cool things that I got to see there. So one thing that I looked at was... It is one of my favorite places. Yeah, it really is. It is an awesome place. (laughs) I want to spend more afternoons there. So I looked at the Spanish equivalent of the Lutheran Witness called Noticiero de la Fe, which just means News of the Faith. So that's um, a publication in all, all in Spanish, and they have lots of... They have, you know, the same content that Lutheran Witness does. So there's... Uh, theological essays and devotions and that sort of thing. And then there are news updates of the different churches. So I, I read a lot of those. And then one of the, um, probably the the most comprehensive single document that I looked at was a manuscript by the Reverend Gerhard Hubner, um, who was a longtime missionary in Argentina, mostly, but it seems like he had his hand in everything. And so it was just a typewritten manuscript um, of the, the, I looked at one 
that he wrote for Mexico and one for Argentina, and I, he, he did several others too. But it was really interesting. Each of these, he began with a history of the country itself before he delved into awesome. um, the the history of LCMS missions there, and those were just a delight to read. So, so Hubner, where was kind of where was he? Uh, you know, really focused. Uh, kind of what was his base of operations? I think you say he's kind of all over the place, but what was his yeah. Main focus? So he he was based mainly in Argentina. Yeah, Argentina, um, okay. yeah, and 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 that makes sense too. The so the earliest. Uh, LCMS mission efforts really began in Brazil and Argentina. So mm-hmm. both of those churches began as mission districts. So actually, and if you look at old LCMS records, there mm-hmm. used to be an Argentine district and a Brazil district, just like the Missouri district and the Montana district and the Texas district. So I thought that was that was really fun and interesting. And then those those two churches were the first to become independent sister churches. In your research, <laughs> was there any uh, discussion of why they moved from this idea of uh, you know, Argentine district to an independent Argentine church. What was kind of the, do you know, was there any discussion about that mm-hmm. behind the scenes? I think, I mean, it sounds like logistics to me that really? uh, it would just be, I mean, there the the amount that uh, you had to travel back and forth between St. Louis and Argentina just would get unrealistic at some point, <laughs> especially pre-airplanes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I think there's that. And then also the, the, with each of these churches, as soon as, there are church plants. Um, as soon as the talk of a you know becoming an independent partner church begins, there's also okay, and we need a seminary too. And so mm-hmm. I think that's probably another reason why churches like especially these two early ones moved from the district model to an independent model. It's just it's easier to run. But gotcha. Yeah. In your research, you of course did a lot of it. Once again, we had to cut, uh, <laughs> cut, cut, cut in order to get it to fit in the magazine. Uh, what, in, as you did your research, what did you find kind of the most interesting thing in your research? Yeah. So I think the the thing that struck me the most was how familiar it all sounded. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sounded like all of the all of that I was reading just sounded like early church history or. Mm-hmm. I even I I recently read a early medieval history of the growth of the church in England and mm-hmm. it's like hmm, same story <laughs> like there's uh, there's persecution there's controversy over doctrine there's problems with not having enough pastors there are pastors who are just globe trotting constantly mm-hmm. and doing the best they can to to serve as many people as they can there's political unrest. There's, uh, you know, all basically everything you can imagine. It's just the same story again and again because I think that's the universal story of the gospel. So yeah, so that that broadly, that's what I found the most interesting. Kind of a more particular story that I loved was one that came out of Caracas in Venezuela. So back in the 1950s, 1960s, Caracas was very cosmopolitan, it seemed like. And um, there's this, there was this trilingual LCMS parish there. And it turned out that like for all of these people who had immigrated from all over the world, the common language was Spanish and so you had Finnish Lutherans and Latvian Lutherans and German Lutherans and local Venezuelans all attending church here. I just thought that was really neat. That is really um, neat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so then the pa- who was the pastor there? The oh, I, I can't remember off the top of That's my okay. head what That's his right. name was. Yeah. But, but so then he ended up doing everything in Spanish, despite mm-hmm. all of these European languages. Right. That that Spanish was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you're used to hearing English is kind of the the yeah. lingua franca or whatever. But yeah, no, Spanish was the common language between everybody. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, what other uh, stories did you have to cut that you would have loved to include? Yeah. In this? Well, I actually, so I brought, <laughs> I brought one of I stole a Lutheran. <laughs> from you again. I brought one because I 
included part of this story in the Guatemala section, but I had to cut a lot of it. And this is the story of, of a seminarian who actually was arrested and put into prison for 33 hours. Thankfully, not any longer than that. But um, I just wanted to read a little bit Go of it, it. just because I had to, <laughs> I had to, the, this, this, so it was the Reverend um, Robert Gussick who wrote this letter into the Lutheran Witness, and he had such a wonderful storytelling voice, and I just wanted to quote it at length. Sure. But I couldn't give do us that. the so reference. Anyway, so, give us a reference. What year are we? So uh, this is in 1949. So Guatemala in 1949, and this little bit. So let's see here. Trouble broke out in Puerto Barrios when a cache of arms was discovered. The government sent down reinforcements and a general roundup of all suspicious characters had been ordered. At that time, Ted had been helping out in cutting timber for the thatched chapel in the jungle. When he came in that day from the jungle, from the jungle, his pants and boots were covered with mud and the guards posted on the outskirts of the city picked him up on suspicion as a foreigner who, in their estimation, had no good reason for being in the jungle. <laughs> Back in the police station, the papers which Ted carried did him little good, for often many people are not able to read. So into the prison he went. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the, I mean, yeah, the old LWs are just full of stuff yeah. like that. So, And he eventually got out. Uh, yes, yes, right. So, yeah, what, so what's kind of the resolution of the story? Right, so the resolution of the story is there's... I, yeah, there, there's somebody from the United Fruit Company who recognizes him and puts pressure on the guards to get him out. And thankfully, yeah, he's only he's only there for a little more than a day and all's well that ends well. And I suppose that's the other really wonderful thing about all of these stories that I came across is they're so joyful in spite of being uh, recounting pretty scary things. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's that is just real, real Christian joy just coming through. Mm -hmm even stories of arrest. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. There are plenty of those, right? Yeah. Off the top of your head, as you think about these various countries that you wrote about and the, the partner churches in each of these various countries, what makes each of these countries kind of unique in the work that went on there and in their, their congregational life? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, of course, each country has its own unique history and unique political circumstances, especially. And in the 20th century, there's, there's a lot happening in you know, a place like, like Venezuela or Mexico. And, you know, and then also, you know, some of these begin, like, like we talked about a second ago, they begin as mission districts of the LCMS. Others begin as daughter churches. Mm -hmm. So Argentina is responsible for uh, the Paraguayan daughter church. So they, they really get that off the ground. And then also it's just the, the people that they're ministering to that kind of varies as well. So with, uh, with places like Brazil and Argentina, those churches really began with communities of German immigrants who mm -hmm. moved there, you know, much like they moved to the United States in the 19th century. And in other places, the the mission work began immediately among the local people. It didn't begin with with immigrants who were kind of already Lutheran and just needing a pastor. Yeah. Was there a, an impulse among the Germans uh, from your kind of reading was there an impulse among the Germans to reach out to the local community or was it fairly insular, you know, yeah, as, as I, Germans can right. be sometimes? I get the impression that it was fairly insular for a long time. But, but I mean, I but I think in, in the way that like immigrant communities just sort of yeah. are like it's a there's a language barrier, there's a cultural barrier. The, uh, the I guess in Brazil, many of the Lutherans who moved there uh, were trying to break off from the Prussian Union of Churches. Mm -hmm. They were trying to maintain a real confessional identity, the same for the same reason that uh, you know people moved to the United States and started the LCMS. So there's so there's a, there are a lot of impulses to just like okay, let's clarify who we are and let's stick to it, and we're not going to try and do too much else. But then you know the the Lord 
always works through us, right? And mm-hmm. and so the um, around World War II, uh, actually back in World War One as well, um, there's a lot of anti-German sentiment in mm-hmm. in these in South America, especially. And speaking German was outlawed or discouraged, or you know the, um, these sorts of things. And then later, more in 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, and this happened in Venezuela. Um, the kind of as these countries are, fine, you know, coming to their own as 21st century countries or whatever, they're they're they they really enforce. Okay, Spanish only is going to be spoken mm-hmm. in our schools. And so once again, these German communities kind of had to adapt and mm-hmm. start. You know, even if they weren't forbidden from fe- speaking German, they had to. You know, they had to speak Spanish in the classroom, and so that just forced uh, yeah. outreach, and it it really did result in the community changing and more people hearing the gospel, I think. There was an interesting little tidbit uh, in your your article about a group of Germans uh, during World War II mm-hmm. that were actually sent to the United States and yeah. kind of some connections they made there. Give us, a, yeah. give us that little short story. That was, I thought that was kind of neat. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't aware of kind of the background of this, this right. type of story. Okay, so that so are you thinking of the, the North Dakota internment yeah, camp? So. Yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. that was a wild story. So um, <laughs> the... <laughs> It's so far flung, too. So what happened was there were German Guatemalans living in Guatemala, um, and they got sent to an internment camp in North Dakota. And this was a common thing. Right. This was a common thing, right? So sort of like the Japanese internment camps, Mm -hmm. too. Like there was a lot of suspicion. Like uh, like Mm -hmm. if you're on the wrong side, right, then we're we're shipping you off. Like this is kind of a scary thing. And I Um, I kind of knew this happened within the U.S. I didn't know that people were shipped from like South America (laughs) to the U.S. They're like, here, you take care of them. You watch them. Because we don't, yeah, we don't want to deal with them. So anyway, so, so these Guatemalan Germans wind up in... North Dakota, and they're ministered um, to there by an LCMS pastor. Mm-hmm. And when thankfully they do get to return to Guatemala eventually, and they write back to the LCMS and say, "Hey, send us a pastor." <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was a very very cool story. That's incredible. Yeah. And was that kind of the start then of mission work, uh, LCMS work in Guatemala? Yeah, yeah, much? yeah. <laughs> so that's very cool. That's pretty neat. In your course of study, as you kind of were preparing this uh, this article. Did you come across any, you know, future plans for work in mm-hmm. Latin America and the Caribbean? Yeah, and yeah. I guess I didn't. This is this is one thing that. Well, I guess the 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 biggest thing that I had to leave leave out was I, f- I felt like most of my histories were very front loaded and and how I was telling them, and that was mostly just time constraints. But <laughs> yeah. um, I so yeah. So I guess I did not I did not research that. Uh, um, Quite all right. A I just yeah. figured I'd ask <laughs> right. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, why? Why do you think this is an important topic for the LCMS to be hearing about now? I mean, we're we're gonna have we're gonna talk about in a minute kind of future plans what we're doing with this, but uh, why is this kind of an important topic now? Sure, yeah. So I think it's really cool to see the work of the church everywhere. This gets and this gets back to what Stacy was saying earlier about you know understanding what the church is that you know it's it's where Christ is and. Uh, where we hear the word and receive the sacraments, and that's that is that is the mark of the church. So, so I think that's really really cool and good to, for people to remember is that we're not just we're not just in the United States. This is um, the gospel is a universal thing meant for everyone, and it is working everywhere. And I also think that studying church history is really important too. Mm-hmm. It's important to have a sense of continuity and a sense of where you came from, and it also just helps us understand. I think like even the incarnation better, right? Mm-hmm. As God works in concrete ways in history. So studying church history is, you know, is, is studying who Jesus is. 
There's also a sense in which I think it's important for our churches, uh, as we look towards convention in particular, we actually have a number of resolutions coming up. Uh, You're probably not, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have a number of resolutions coming up on declaring uh, partnership, uh, fellowship, altar and pulpit fellowship with other Mm -hmm. churches. Uh, And then also something that hasn't happened in in many years, uh, breaking fellowship with a church body um, Mm -hmm. over uh, false, false doctrine and false practice. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think it's important also just so that people has a, people have a sense of, you know, what's out there, who who we're in fellowship with, uh, kind of the, the life of the Lutheran Church around the globe. Uh, speaking of which, do you have any plans for future articles? Yes, I would love to keep writing these if you will <laughs> keep letting me write them. <laughs> yeah, we, that, that is the plan. The question mm-hmm. is whether we're going to do it online or in print. Mm-hmm. If we do it online, then we can just let her go hog wild and she can write 3,000 word articles on each <laughs> well, one. And so. that's, I mean, this is, I guess this is my question for hey, everyone out there in the LCMS. Has anyone attempted a history like this before? Like, is this yeah. something that's you know, are there more manuscripts in, you know, in CHI archives that, you know, there is actually a fully formed history of these things already in existence that's just waiting to be published. But we'll have to look I'm into wondering. it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> more time in CHI. So. Yeah. <laughs> Last question. Um, is there anything I should have asked and didn't ask? Uh, anything that, that uh, you don't have to phrase it as a question, but anything that, you know, you really want to get out there that I didn't uh, think to ask about? Yeah, I can't think, I can't think of anything. <laughs> Stacey, do you have any questions for Sarah? Yeah, I guess just hearing about some of these stories, especially where there's a pastor who maybe knows four languages and is holding a divine service in three, you know, or (laughs) it kind of reminded me, I think I mentioned this earlier, but of some of the language that people used kind of metaphorically to talk about these Mm -hmm. MCPs um, and the the pastors having to learn two languages Mm -hmm. to preach even to adapt their sermons, to preach to these two separate congregations. Um, And some people saw that almost as a a positive because having these two congregations forces you to actually see that reality that would be there with one congregation as well, which is that you need to make sure, I mean, there's, there's a task of translation almost in, in communicating, making sure you're communicating clearly to your people. So I guess, did you see any of that in these congregations and what can we maybe learn from uh, some of these pastors who were out on the mission field? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like you, you, I, 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 there's all this, all, all this evidence of really preaching to the people who are right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means doing it in Spanish or doing it in per- Portuguese a lot of times when your original language, uh, native language is German or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think that forces a lot of, um, clear thinking on your own on on your own part, a lot of clear theology, clear writing. Then also, like you have to get to know the people who you're speaking to, um, and that just puts a real, yeah, a real emphasis on you know we're 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 here for we're here for individual people who are who are here for the gospel, and and so there's this kind of purity there and um, yeah. ultra focus rather than all these other fluffy yeah, yeah. distractions that we think are the church sometimes and they're really not. But yeah. um, but actually, let me turn that question around also to you, Stacy. as you were doing a kind of multi-congregation parish study, did you see, was there any sort of multilingual, like actual multilingual emphasis there in, in terms of a congregation saying, um, you know, we, we live in a, a predominantly Spanish community. We're going to either find a, another church to partner with that, that focuses in Spanish, or we're going to, add maybe another Spanish congregation to our own? Like, is there any sense of that sort of a thing uh, in your MCP study? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I know I heard an example of this in one of the cities. 
that had been tried, and I can't remember what language it was, but it was some immigrant community Mm -hmm. that then there was a community there that there was a congregation that I don't think they had been holding services in that language, but there was like enough of a bulk of people that spoke that language there Mm -hmm. that then there was like this, um, this attempt to merge these two together. And I can't remember what language it was, so it's not very helpful, but yeah, I know there ha- that has been attempted where mm-hmm. you can kind of link together these two ministries that can serve in this language and mm-hmm. then and then spread the gospel in that way. Mm-hmm. That's great. Anything else, Sarah, on your article? <laughs> I think that's all I've got. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, thank you especially to uh, Sarah and Stacy for joining me on the podcast today, for writing these articles for the magazine and for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, if you have any questions or want to follow up, you can send us an email at lutheran.witness at lcms.org. Uh, how can people get a hold of you, uh, yeah, Stacy? Mine would be Stacy Egger. That's Stacy, S T A C E Y, dot Egger at lcms.org. And mine's Sarah dot Rensel at lcms.org, S A R A H dot R E I N S E L at lcms.org. So if you have any other further questions or uh, any other information that you'd like to share, you can feel free to reach out to Sarah and Stacy. Thank you once again for joining me. And I hope we can do this again in the future because I really enjoyed this. So thank you to all of you out there who are listening to the Lutheran Witness uh, podcast, where we help you learn to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.